Hello folks, this is J.B. Hickson with Not By Works Ministries. Due to my travel schedule, we will not be recording our usual midweek podcast on how to read and understand the Bible this week or next week. Instead, we will be posting archived messages on meaningful topics that I think you'll appreciate. We will return to our series on how to read and understand the Bible on Wednesday night, December the 15th. For today's midweek podcast, I'm posting an archived message entitled, The Nature, Beginning, and Future of the Church. I first gave this message five years ago at a conference in Minnesota, and in it I talk about how the church, the body of Christ, fits into God's plan of the ages. I hope you'll enjoy this message, which has never before been heard on our podcast channel. And please reach out to us anytime through our mobile app or online at notbyworks.org if we can ever be of assistance. God bless you, and now here is the nature, beginning, and future of the church. But it really is a great time to be alive, and, and I want to put this in perspective by way of, uh, of introduction as we talk about the mystery of the church. And I thought it was, it was interesting, coincidentally, this week on our radio show, we're doing a series on the mystery of the church. And that's not by design because it just so happens we're in a season right now where we're replaying stuff from two years ago, and I don't pick what we're going to do. The producer does. And so uh, when he sent me the email Friday that this week was going to be the mystery of the church, I thought, how perfect. So uh, if anybody's interested in that, you can always get the archives of that on our, on our website. But it is, it is a mystery, as uh, Pastor said, and, and uh, it's a great time to be alive. If we look at the big picture... Uh, think about each one of these ages throughout human history, 6,000 years of human history, and we could have been born in, in just about any one of these ages, right? We could have been born in the age of conscience or the age of human government. How many of you are glad we weren't alive during the day of the flood? Because unless you're, I started to say your last name is Noah, but I guess <laughs> unless you're part of Noah's family, you, you would be in trouble, right? Um, Obviously, we could have lived in the age of promise, the age of the law, but here we are living in the age of the church, and, and this really is the last age, this church age. Uh, obviously, there's a, uh, you know, a short transition to complete the 70th week of Daniel. We'll talk more about that in a moment, uh, that transition us into the kingdom age. But if you look at the grand scheme of human history, this is the last age, and it's a, it's a wonderful age to be alive. Think of all the blessings. We're going to be learning about that throughout this uh, pastor's conference. Uh, many of the, the topics we're going to look at and the p passages that speakers will be talking about will remind us afresh of, of the, the blessings of being part of this unique uh, church age. So it's a wonderful time to be alive. These are wonderful days to be alive, though, for another reason as well. Um, it's, been, it's been just a joyous week for me and my family. You know, anytime you have a week where the Cowboys win and the Packers and Vikings do not win, that's a great week. And that's what we had happen, uh, happen this week. In fact, it's especially awesome when the reason the Packers don't win is because the Cowboys pounded them. In case some of you haven't been paying attention to the headlines, let me just remind you. Uh, that's, for, that's for Tom. Where's Tom? Is he in here, Stiegel? Uh, he's the only Packers fan that will admit it, I think. Uh, now, Dennis mentioned how glad he was to see us this week. I think that's, he only likes me because my Cowboys beat the Packers. That's the only reason he likes me this week. He's, he's thankful for that. Um, but, uh, you know, there's several great reasons uh, that I'm thankful to live in the day in which I live. Another great reason that I'm thankful to live in this 
day and age is because we have many great modern-day prophets that are predicting the good fortunes of the cowboys. In fact, I'm going to play a short clip for you here. It's only six seconds, so you need to listen carefully and quickly. Um, but, uh, but listen to what this one great prophet of God said just three days ago, prior to the Cowboys' victory. So it was clearly predictive prophecy. So can you guys play that from up here, or do I need to figure out how to do that? Uh, here we go. All right. All right. You ready? I might be thinking that the Packers are going to lose to the Cowboys today. No man knows. No man knows. But let, let, we, we got to hear that again. He says, no man knows, but he's being very humble because he knew. I might be thinking that the Packers are going to lose to the Cowboys today. No man knows. No man knows. Well, we knew, and uh, we weren't a bit surprised. And uh, so it is a great day uh, to be alive. Now, uh, in all seriousness, one of the problems, where was Dennis, by the way? Just was he, he had slipped out. Well, he'll have to, we'll have to play that again just for his benefit because i got to see the look on his face. Um, one of the, uh, the, the, the problems with living in this age is most people within evangelical Christianity don't appreciate the uniqueness of this age. And they don't understand the, the, the clear distinction in Scripture, for example, between the church and the kingdom. And a couple of weeks ago, I was in Sioux Falls and did a Bible conference where I had two hour-long sessions on the emergent church. And then as I was preparing this presentation, I thought, uh, this is, uh, some of these quotes really are very telling for where we are today in our culture. For example... Um, this is from a book by Eddie Gibbs and Ryan Bolger, Emerging Churches. They say the number one goal of the emergent church, according to this book, is to recenter the gospel on Christ and the kingdom of God. Well, I didn't know the gospel needed recentering, but this becomes a huge issue uh, for those that don't understand the nature of the church. Uh, listen to what this uh, guy says, Doug Padgett. Some of you may have uh, be familiar with some of his stuff. As Christ-centered people, many of us understand the gospel in terms of Jesus' radical, profound, and expansive message of the kingdom of God. Notice that emphasis on the kingdom of God. The emerging church is helping to articulate the call for Christianity to, quote, go beyond mere belief in commands and into a life that's in rhythm with God. He says, the kingdom of God is a central conversation in emerging communities. And you do hear it again and again and again. The more uh, I travel, the more we interact with, with people, the more common this terminology is in, in language. People think of the kingdom of God as now. We are living in the kingdom. Uh, my friend uh, Andy Woods just finished a book, uh, <coughs> outstanding resource, explaining why that is not the case. But he goes on, within many of us, there is a desire for the good news of Jesus to really be good news for the people of the world and not just the promise of a world to come. Many find good news in the call of Jesus to join the kingdom of God. That's how you get saved, by the way, is joining the kingdom of God. So he admits the kingdom of God language is really big in the emerging church. So here's how I would sort of uh, chart out what I've seen happening since the, the early 90s and the onset of postmodernism. The, the gospel, we believe, according to Scripture, is primarily, first and first mo foremost, 
information on how individuals can be rescued from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. Would you agree with that? That's the good news of, of Jesus Christ. But in the postmodern age, they started adding footnotes. For example, there's a, a large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God. And then there's another footnote about character development and about spiritual experience or spiritual formation. And then you've got, in recent years, this, this footnote coming out of the emergent folks about the social kingdom transformation. And what has happened is this has sort of eclipsed the essence of the gospel so that we no longer have a biblical gospel, but it morphs into this missional philosophy. So whenever you hear the term missional, a red flag ought to go up. It sounds like a good term, doesn't it? It sounds like it's straight out of Scripture, the Great Commission. And, uh, but what they mean by it is something totally different. They mean that the gospel is supposed to be more about social change and transformation than it is about spiritual change. And the gospel has been eclipsed. It no longer has a precise content. And when that happens, the church has ceased to be the church. Because as we looked at that panoramic view of the ages, in any given age, God has a, a designated people or people group, an envoy, that are to represent him and his glory whether that was Adam and Eve who represented his glory made in the image of God prior to the fall, whether it was Abraham, whether it was Moses, uh, Noah in his day. Today, that's the church. We are here to represent God and to be his missionaries spreading the good news. And in the New Testament, it is very, very clear what the content of that good news is and what precisely someone has to believe to be saved. But the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and in so doing, one of his main methods is to make the gospel not about <clears throat> the penalty for sin and hell and all of those things that the gospel really is about, but to make it about this nebulous idea of just being happy, having purpose, having contentment, changing the world, feeding the hungry, digging wells, all of that which is important. We are to make a difference in the world socially as well, but only first and foremost spiritually. Once people change spiritually, then they can begin to change the world. So when we talk about the church versus the kingdom, we need to understand that oftentimes we're talking past each other. The average believer today doesn't really understand the, the hope and the glory of the kingdom to come, and they certainly don't understand the nature and purpose of the church today at large. So we need to keep those things distinct. But I got to thinking about it, and I talked about this last Sunday in, uh, in uh, Itasca Bible Church, but really we're no different in some ways as the church today uh, from the apostles during Christ's earthly ministry. Like many people today, the apostles were obsessed with the coming kingdom. Now the difference is they understood it as a literal kingdom. They knew that from the promise, promises of the prophets of old that, that, that the Messiah was going to come. He was going to take the throne in the rebuilt temple. He's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. They knew that the wolf would lie down with the lamb. The baby would play by the cobra's pit. They knew that a better day was coming, a glorious day, when, when Christ would rule with a rod of iron, the son of David, the Davidic promise would be fulfilled. They knew all of that. And so when, when John the Baptist first and then Jesus shortly after him began their ministries by saying the kingdom is at hand, that got their attention. And so these early believers, the disciples, uh, were quite interested in what Jesus had to say about the kingdom. And for three and a half years, if you look at the gospel accounts, the synoptic gospel accounts, you see this constant reference to the kingdom. Uh, Jesus 
frequently talks about the kingdom. He talked about who was going to sit on the 12 thrones in the kingdom. He promised what they would get for, for following him faithfully in the kingdom. Uh, the disciples were very eager too. Peter in particular wanted to know, what will we get in the kingdom? And, and one of the disciples' moms uh, wanted to know if her sons could sit on either side of Christ in the kingdom. You never get any hint throughout the earthly ministry of Christ that the kingdom was anything but a future literal uh, earthly uh, kingdom. Uh, and the disciples, even though Jesus progressively began to reveal more to them about uh, the nature of his ministry and the fact that the cross must precede the crown, and they should have known that anyway. That was predicted in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9. Um, but they, they missed it. And their focus was just on this kingdom. And they really wanted the kingdom to come, and progressively more. And so then as you get near the end of Christ's earthly ministry, in Luke chapter 19 the day before the triumphal entry, so we're literally four days or so, three or four days from the, the betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. They're on the outskirts of Jerusalem, uh, and Luke tells us in Luke 19 that as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So you can just imagine how giddy they were with excitement. They've, been, they've convinced themselves that Christ, during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, was leading up to something, leading up to, to that moment when he was going to storm into Jerusalem, throw off the shackles of Rome, usher in this long-awaited kingdom. And here they were. It was Passover week. They're on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They think this is it. And, and they really have no idea what's about to happen, even though they should have. They missed it. And so Luke 19, 11 to 27, the parable of the minas, or sometimes we call it the parable of delay, Jesus, for the first time, hints at the church. Now, he doesn't specifically mention it here. Uh, I know in Matthew 16 he talks about it in the future tense. We're going to get to that in a minute. But here he's trying, without coming right out and saying it, to let the disciples know there is going to be a delay in this kingdom that you so desperately want. He says, you know, the king's going to go away, and uh, he's going to be away for a while. While he's gone, you need to be busy and faithful doing the things that I've called you to do. But the king is going to come back someday. And when he does, you're going to give an account for what you did with your life. The parable of the minas in Luke 19 is totally separate and distinct from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Different audiences, different details, different occasions. The parable of the talents, each one I think represents Israel and they each get a different talent. Um, I'm doing a video series. We've done six of the ten parts right now on the Olivet Discourse. They're available for free on our website, but we get into that. But the parable of the minas is different. Everyone gets the same thing, one mina, and it's a life of service. It's, it's what are you going to do while I'm gone with your life? And uh, so, But the disciples still uh, didn't get it. So, so the idea here, if I can put just a, a rudimentary uh, eschatology uh, chart up here, the, the disciples were fixated over here on the kingdom. They couldn't wait for the kingdom to come. You know, They were living over here in the apostolic age just prior to the cross, but their attention was over here on the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, not so fast. Be patient. The kingdom will come, but you've got a lot that has to happen between point A and point B. You know, so, you know, for example, the atoning work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's kind of important. And then you've got the entire church age, which hadn't even been revealed yet. And then you've got the rescuing of the church from the present evil age. And then you've got the battle of Gog and Magog and, and, the, and the Antichrist signing the peace treaty and the fulfillment of Daniel's 490-year plan, that final seven-year period. 
Uh, and then you've got all that takes place during that tribulation period in this climactic cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And, and then you've got the battle of Armageddon. And then you've got the return of Christ to inaugurate the kingdom. So be patient. But the disciples uh, didn't really understand that parable in Luke 19. So consequently, when, uh, you know, that was on a Sunday, uh, let's see, Monday was the triumphal entry. We celebrated on Sunday, but uh, most uh, scholars uh, following Harold Honer's excellent work put the triumphal entry on Monday. Uh, so by Thursday night, he was betrayed, arrested, crucified early Friday morning. So within a matter of days, their whole world was turned upside down. And so, so he dies and rises again, praise the Lord for our sins, pays our penalty for sin. And then, of course, he resurrects the third day, has the post-resurrection appearances. Now I want you uh, to, uh, to, to fast forward to the Mount of Ascension. In fact, there's one little conversation that I think is riveting that takes place before that. So we already talked about the conversation on the outskirts of Jerusalem on what was to be Sunday night. And Monday he rides in on the back of a donkey. Now fast forward to Wednesday, the Olivet Discourse, the Mount of Olives. So in Matthew 23, Jesus has just, you know, rejected Israel formally. He's said all those wonderful, loving, and kind things that our softer, gentler, kinder God uh, that we preach today says, like hypocrites and snakes and vipers and whitewashed tombs and all of those things. You know, you never hear that preached or see that on a marquee of most uh, churches today. But he says all those things, and then he, he concludes at the end of Matthew 23. This is, this is Wednesday night with those fateful words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so that was a really puzzling thing for the disciples. Because again, they're still thinking, man, the kingdom's about to come any minute. Yeah, they heard his parable of the minas. They weren't quite sure what to make. There he goes speaking in parables again. But anyway, what about that kingdom, Lord? And so, but then, and the disciples, by the way, were present when he said all those things in Matthew 23, because chapter 23, verse 1 tells us, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, verse 1. So they were there, and they're thinking, boy, what does he mean by your house is left to you desolate? How can he take the throne if the house is desolate. This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Um, Jesus says, I, I longed, speaking to the national leaders of Israel, I longed to gather you together. That's a significant word. He uses it twice in verse 37. And then in the Olivet Discourse that follows, he talks about that moment when he's going to come back and gather them together from the four winds of heaven uh, in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30 and Isaiah 27. Uh, but it wasn't time. And so the disciples are a little puzzled how he can be about to take the throne and yet speak of the temple in that way. So you come out of chapter 23 and you get into chapter 24 in Matthew. And, and, and it's, in fact, all three of the synoptics have this experience. The disciples are a little nervous. You kind of get the sense. And they start pointing to the temple as they're walking away and saying, Lord, isn't this temple awesome? That's a paraphrase. Uh, one of the synoptic writers, I can't remember which one, actually names who they were. Matthew just says the disciples came up to him and pointed out the buildings of the temple. It's as if they're saying, you know, they're, they're wanting the Lord to reassure them that indeed the temple is about to be occupied by its long-awaited king. But then Jesus puts it bluntly, doesn't he, in Matthew 24 too. He says, don't you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, 
Not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, that puts it pretty bluntly, Matthew 24, 2. So now he's really got the disciples' attention. And they're like, wait a minute, Lord. What are you talking about? And then in verse 3, they have these series of questions, which I don't take it. Some commentators suggest this is sort of an outline of the Olivet Discourse. I don't see it that way at all. I don't think there's, the text demands that by any stretch. I think it's just this ecstatic series of questions from some confused disciples that are ready for the kingdom right now, and Jesus has just said the temple's going to be destroyed. How do you reconcile the two? So they say in verse 3, tell us, when, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, they wanted to know, when, when will you get to the end of the age here and usher in the kingdom when they're living over here? They didn't, they didn't want all this stuff in the middle. They weren't really familiar with it. They should have been. They should have been able to plainly see that Daniel's prophecy hadn't been fulfilled yet, or completed yet. Part of it had been, but not all of it. But they were like, you know, when will this be? And so then the entire Olivet Discourse is Jewish in nature. It's all about the kingdom and the second coming. It's Jesus answering the simple question, when will the kingdom come? That's the question, in essence. And so he gives all of these signs, uh, general signs. I take it in, in up through verse 14 of 24. Uh, then he gives very specific signs in 15 to 26. And then in 27 to 31, he gives detailed signs that will accompany the second coming, the cosmic signs, the lightning from the east to the west, the earth shaking, all the light being no more. And then the entire rest of the Olivet Discourse, starting with verse uh, uh, 32 in the parable of the fig tree, all the way through the end of chapter 25, is just Jesus' at practical applications about these signs. When you see these signs, then you'll know that the coming is near. And be ready, be watchful, don't be caught off guard. And, and indeed, that future generation that will be alive when he comes back, many of them will be deceived. So you have all of that. that this is all a backdrop of that final Passion Week of Christ's life. So now fast forward, and we're at the Mount of Ascension. You'd think by now the disciples would get it, right? So you have this interesting uh, conversation on the Mount of Ascension, and the disciples, once again, obsessed with the kingdom, and they say, uh, or that was Mount of Olives, I'll just use that one. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? So I love this. This is, you know, this is not in the text, but I can't help but think that you know, the disciples probably prefaced it by saying something like, Lord, you know, man, we're so glad you're alive again. <laughs> um, and we're so sorry that we missed all of this stuff about the suffering servant and you know, the death and the crucifixion, and, and thank you for that, by the way. We can now be forgiven for our sins. We really appreciate that. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you, Lord. Um, and, uh, but now, by the way, can we get back to the kingdom? <laughs> what about that kingdom? And, and here's where Jesus could have seized the opportunity to reject and correct the notion of a literal kingdom, if indeed it wasn't literal, like so many teach today. Uh, but he didn't do that, did he? He affirmed it. And he simply said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Times is, is the Greek word chronos. It means length or uh, duration of time. And then the, the word seasons is the word kairos. It means the exact date. Uh, the timing is, is up to me, the Lord said. Uh, just go back to Jerusalem, be about the Father's business, and wait. And then, you know, it even kind of goes on from there. I, I realize I'm, I'm reading some, some background into this, but I really think given the whole context of the last week or so of Christ's earthly life and then all that's been happening, I think this is a reasonable assumption that the, you know, the disciples when Christ ascends are standing there looking up as if they thought he was going to go up and grab the keys to the kingdom, come back down and inaugurate it right then. 
And finally, these men in white raiment appear, and they say, you know, why are you standing here? You know, don't you remember what he said to you the day before he entered Jerusalem? Go back and be busy. You got Amina to do something with, right? And so they go back to Jerusalem later on in Acts chapter 1, and the first thing they do is replace Judas uh, by casting lots, and Matthias, remember? And again, I, I think they were so convinced, rightly so, that the kingdom was going to come, literally, and Jesus had said, you're going to reign on 12 thrones with me. They didn't want that 12th throne to be empty. So they wanted to make sure it was ready. And then you see in the early days of the church, repeated references in, in, uh, to the kingdom, the second offer of the kingdom, and so forth. Uh, and then, of course, what we're going to be talking about here today, and in my message in particular, uh, it turns out that there was an extended delay. So far, it's been roughly 2,000 years. But those promises haven't been forsaken. They haven't been forgotten. See, the early church very quickly abandoned the promise of a literal kingdom. Now, part of that was they didn't have access to the Word of God the way we do today. Um, and it wasn't until after the printing press and, and the Reformation when people could read the Bible again for themselves without being murdered um, uh, that they began to put the pieces together once again and say, you know what, if the Bible means what it says it means, we can expect a literal return of Christ. But unfortunately, due to the, you know, the work of, of church fathers like Origen and Augustine, especially with his book City of God, you know, that, this, this notion of a figurative spiritualized kingdom really ruled uh, in, in the mainstream uh, thought of the church for a thousand years or more. Um, but today, we can look forward, just like the disciples did, but we have the benefit of the, the rest of God's uh, revelation, his self-unveiling to us in the written word, and we understand more because we have the whole counsel of God. So we, we can relate to the disciples, can't we? Because, boy, especially these days, you know, uh, we've, we've, uh, we've got so much craziness going on. And, and I don't know about you, but I would love it if the kingdom could come. And in the grand scheme of things, I understand there's going to be at least a seven-year transition period to finish out Daniel's 70 weeks between the rapture and the kingdom. But still, when you think of, you know, 6,000 years of human history, what's seven years? Uh, I want the kingdom to come, don't you? And it would be awesome. You know, uh, we've got so many geopolitical things happening. We've got uh, economic crises. We've got war. We've got, you know, abortion. Now we've got gender neutrality and attacks on marriage. And, you know, you've got the beast and the false prophet facing off on November 8th. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it really, it really is prophetic. It, it really, it, I mean, you couldn't script it any better. Matter of fact, uh, I, I was telling my boys, I said, man, it really, it, it may be, we may be headed for the end of the world because, you know, you got the Cowboys beating the Packers for the first time in forever. You got the Cubs about to make the World Series. I mean, it, it's like everything's coming to fruition. Um, so, but let's talk about, let's talk about this wonderful uh, church, the church age and the nature of the church. So, uh, obviously, the first thing that we need to re be reminded of is that the church is a mystery. Now, I recognize that uh, not everything's a mystery. Uh, for example, uh, the the outcome of the Cowboys-Packers game was not a mystery. Let's, it was not a mystery to Pastor Roxer. I might be thinking that the Packers are going to lose to the Cowboys today. No man knows. But he knew. He knew. So, but when it comes to the church, that is a mystery. Listen to what we read in Ephesians chapter 1. 
In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This word dispensation, one of my favorite words in Scripture. And Paul uses it twice in Ephesians. He uses it again here in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. The mystery. I think everybody in our uh, group here today certainly knows that the word dispensation is the word oikonomia. Administration or stewardship is what that means. And in this present age, we're living in the administration of grace. Not that grace didn't exist in the Old Testament. Grace is an attribute of God. It's the fundamental attribute of God and never never changes. Um, people were saved in the Old Testament by grace through faith, just like they are today and just like they are in every age since the fall of man. But what we see today in the present church age is this economy where grace is sort of in high definition. Uh, those who wanted to, to picture grace, they, they could see it in the old. It was there through the sacrificial system. It was there... Uh, in, in places like you know Abraham and Isaac, and you, know, you, you see clearly God manifesting his grace. But never before was it manifested, nor ever will be, the way it was on Calvary that day, when God himself in the flesh shed his blood, paid a, a debt he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. So that's why we call it the dispensation of grace. He goes on to say, by which... When you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. There's the definition of a mystery right there. Uh, something previously undisclosed, and it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. The Greek word mystery is the word mysterion. It means previously unmanifested counsel of God. Previously unmanifested counsel of God. You won't find the church in the Old Testament. God has revealed it to us now. He goes on to say, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. In Paul's sister epistle, Colossians, he says the same uh, thing. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, which I became a minister, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from which God, uh, from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. This mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them... God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, there's several unique things about the church. We're going to look at seven of them. As a good dispensationalist, each of my sections has seven points, so make note of that. Um, but uh, the first thing right out of the chute that we need to understand is that this church age is unique. You can't go back to the Old Testament and, and find characteristics of the church. You can't read the New Testament back into the Old Testament. That's what uh, covenant theologians do. I mean, they, they value the Word of God. They love the Lord Jesus just like we do, some great uh, men and women of God that hold those views. But 
they have a fundamental error in their hermeneutics, and that is they start with the New Testament and work backwards. We believe in the progress of revelation, that later revelation can never change the meaning of earlier revelation, so we move forward. And so uh, a great uh, trivia question, or not trivia question, but a good question to sort of make sure that you're practicing sound hermeneutics, I used to ask this in my hermeneutics classes for years, uh, is can you understand the meaning of the Old Testament if you've never read the New Testament? And the answer is an absolute yes. Of course you can. If you, if you must have the New Testament to understand the meaning of the Old Testament, then those original recipients of the Old Testament, some, in some cases a thousand years before the New Testament, were given something that was gibberish to them. They had no hope of understanding. Of course you can understand the meaning of the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't change the meaning of the Old Testament. What the New Testament does is it gives us additional information. It fills in some gaps. It adds details and richness. They complement one another, but it can never change the meaning of the Old Testament. So when the Old Testament says Israel or Judah, it means Israel or Judah. And so Daniel is a great example of how the New Testament and the Old Testament complement one another without the New Testament changing uh, the meaning of the Old Testament. You're very familiar, I'm sure, with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Uh, I call it the 490-year plan because that's precisely what it is. Daniel is, of course, living during the Babylonian exile. The 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah the prophet had predicted were coming to an end. And Daniel uh, prays and asks the Lord, what's going to come next in your plan? God was still unfolding his plan and revealing it through prophets and through the written word. And Daniel's curious, hey, what's next? Could you let me know? And in response to Daniel's prayer, God reveals this 490-year plan. And when you break it down and you look at the key time words within Daniel 9 itself, you'll see how perfectly Paul's words that we just read in Ephesians and Colossians uh, uh, complement what Daniel was saying. So let's just kind of break it down. Uh, there's four key time words in Daniel's prophecy, and I'm reading from the New King James, and so I'll highlight them in yellow here. And for to start with, I don't even want to focus on the, the content of what Daniel's saying. I just want you to focus on those time words. Then we'll come back and look at exactly what he's saying. First of all, in verse 25, the first word is the word from. So we'll just call it from A for now. From A, and then the next word is the word until, from A until B, this length of time, Daniel says, will be 69 weeks. Now, a week, very clearly in Hebrew, it's literally the word sevens. And by the way, for those of you that are interested, all of my slides from this presentation are uh, posted or will be by this evening. Uh, every place I speak, I put PDF, six slides per page of, of the presentation. So go to notbyworks.org. You can download it um, and, and, and feel free to, uh, to do that. I see folks taking pictures of the screen, which is fine to do that too if you want to, but it might save you some effort too to know that you can access them later on today. But a week, in, in, uh, in the, the term week in Hebrew is clearly a seven-year period. We see it used in Genesis 29 in the story of, of uh, Jacob and Laban. Remember when Jacob had to work for a week, seven years, to marry Leah, and then another seven years to marry Rachel. So we know that 69 weeks is literally 69 seven-year periods, or 483 years. So what does Daniel say is going to happen in that 483 years, and when will it start? Well, A is very clearly the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, right? So we know from Nehemiah that that decree occurred March 5th, 444 B.C. And the until B, B there is the coming of the Messiah, right? 
Now, what's fascinating is if you follow uh, Harold Honer's dating, this prophecy is fulfilled literally to the day. Because if you take a Jewish year of 360 days and you do the math, I'll do the math for you because if, if you, like me, were public schooled, it may be a little difficult for you. Uh, but 483 years times 360 days comes out to 173,880 days. Now, if you start counting on March 5th, 444 BC, and you count forward day by day, never mind the Gregorian calendar and how they ended up redating things. We, we know that that was off a little bit. For example, Jesus wasn't born in zero. <laughs> He was born in the winter of 5-4 B.C. because Herod was still alive when Jesus was born, and we know historically Herod died in April of 4 B.C. So Jesus couldn't have been born after that. So don't worry about that. Just count forward, and guess where you land? You land at what is now uh, dated March 30th, 33 A.D., which happens to be that Monday of the triumphal entry. How perfect is that? Just as Daniel predicted, the 483 years to the day when Messiah comes which we were just reading about. The next time word that we see in Daniel's prophecy is in verse 26. It's the word after. That is, after the 69th week. Daniel says, after that, some things are going to happen. After the Messiah has come, completing that 483rd year, some things are going to happen. What are they? Well, first of all, the Messiah is going to be cut off. And indeed he was, just three days later. And it also, he also says, and the temple will be destroyed. And indeed, it was nearly four decades later, in 70 A.D. And then, the next time marker is the word then. You see it there in yellow. Then, D, the final seven-year period. And uh, this is the final week. We call it the 70th week of Daniel. It's literally a seven-year period. Jesus quotes Daniel by name in the Olivet Discourse. You see amazing parallels in the Olivet Discourse between uh, Revelation chapters 6 to 18, and you see everything unfolding perfectly in this final seven-year period. Well, what's D? D begins when the Antichrist, according to Daniel 9.27, signs the peace treaty and begins that final 70-year period. Now, what I want you to notice on the screen there is everything in blue relates to Daniel's 70 weeks. And indeed, the prophecy begins by saying, 70 weeks are decreed for my holy people in my city, right? So this is clearly Jewish in nature. But even according to Daniel's own words, you see a very distinct gap of time between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. From A to B will be this much time, then these things are going to happen, then after that, this final seven-year period. Right? Now, the New Testament comes along as God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, reveals the mystery of the church and explains that there's going to be even more things that take place during this gap of time. And it's an unspecified length of a, of a, of a gap. But clearly, the most uh, significant thing that takes place in this gap is obviously the church age. And that's why, historically, dispensationalists, uh, which just means people that believe the Bible, uh, have, have thought of this as a parenthesis, right? Uh, and that's a grammatical metaphor, and I know a lot, of, a lot of modern scholars, contemporary scholars, can't stand that because in their mind, the church is the end-all, be-all of God's plan. The church is the fulfillment of everything God predicted in the Old Testament. So to in any way imply, which we're not even doing, but they, they think we are, that the church is somehow just a, a footnote or, a, or, or an afterthought or a plan B, uh, it bothers them. But that's not what we mean by parenthesis. Parenthesis is actually a very helpful grammatical uh, analogy. 
You know, when you're reading a book and you see something in parentheses, uh, you, don't, you, you don't or shouldn't think, oh, this is in parentheses, I can just skip it. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Sometimes the most significant content is what's in the parentheses, right? And in the footnotes, too, for that matter. Uh, but just, this just means it's a fl in the flow of thought with Israel, we see this parenthesis. We see this break, this gap. And God's doing something unique right now in the world through the church. Again, go back to my, my broad view of the seven dispensations. We're living in the church age, but God's not through with Israel yet. So Paul makes it very clear in Romans 9 through 11 that Israel uh, has exited stage left, as it were, but not forever. God has not forsaken Israel forever. They have a future. They will come back when the deliverer comes out of Zion, be regathered into the land, as we uh, talked about a moment ago in, in Matthew 23 and 24. And then the spotlight will once again be on Israel. The church right now is the one who's center stage. Uh, but the church is going to exit stage up, literally, and then Israel will come on and enter stage right again, and they'll be in uh, center stage. So Paul says this is a period of time of blindness to Israel, but the church has in no ways replaced Israel. And the church is a mystery. It's now been revealed. And it fits perfectly within Daniel's prophecy. You know, some prophecies are fulfilled in stages. Uh, my, my hermeneutic does not allow for so-called dual fulfillment. And we can talk about that another time. I think I did a session here several years ago on typology, and I talked a little bit about that. But I clearly think the Old Testament allows for prophecy fulfilled in stages. Uh, just look at Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, or actually look at Luke uh, chapter 4, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. I'm sure you've uh, caught this before, but it's helpful to remember in the context of partial fulfillment. Uh, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, in Luke chapter 4, in verse 17, says he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is Luke 4, 17. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it says, Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Now, whenever you see the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, you should always go back and, and look at the Old Testament context. This would solve a lot of interpretive uh, problems and errors. So, uh, this is especially true in Paul's writings and in Romans uh, chapter 10 in particular. But if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll notice in verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, what comes after the word Lord? A comma. This is literally in mid-sentence. Jesus reads Isaiah's prophecy, stops mid-sentence, and says, today this has been fulfilled. But the prophecy goes on to say, the day of vengeance of our God. That's related to the second coming. So Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, is a two-fold prophecy, part relating to things that accompany his first advent, part that relate to his coming in judgment at the second advent. But Jesus says, in my earthly ministry, I only fulfilled the first part of that. So there's another example of a, part, of a single prophecy that's fulfilled in stages. And that's what we have with Daniel's prophecy. So the church age is a mystery that fits nicely within Daniel's prophecy. Now we do not know when this final week will occur. Because it cannot occur until after the rapture. When the church is rescued. When that parenthesis is closed as it were. 
because of so many reasons. Uh, um, you know, uh, we have a DVD on the imminency of the rapture, how the rapture could happen at any moment. Um, the church is not suffered to, uh, appointed to suffer wrath and so on and so forth. But you don't find the church in the tribulation anywhere. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And that's why it's, uh, you know, you've got 144,000 Jewish witnesses. You've got everything centered around the temple and the Antichrist indwelt by Satan who's eventually going to take the throne and demand that the world worship him. So we don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, but we know that the church will be rescued before that time. But I might add, that doesn't mean things won't get very, very, very bad for those of us here in America prior to the rapture. Have you ever thought about that? Um, you know, historically, we have, dispensationalists have taught that, you know, it, that, that the rapture is going to be what brings down America, right? Because there's so, such a high population of Christians in America, relatively speaking. First of all, I'm not sure that's true anymore. And second of all, I think that's just, sort of an ethnocentric way of looking at things. Um, you know, we, we don't know if America's even going to be around. I mean, do you realize, here's, a, here's something that will stimulate your thinking. If the Lord tarries is coming very much longer, do you realize you and I, if, if we still are alive and don't die before then, we might be raptured as Chinese nationals or Russians. I mean, America may be a distant history by the time the rapture happens. Uh, my friend Ed Heinsen, we speak a lot together uh, at prophecy conferences, and he several years ago used an answer to a question during the Q&A. Every time you do a conference, typically there's a Q&A afterwards, and that's my favorite time. And, and always at prophecy conferences, the first question I get is, well, where's America in Bible prophecy? And Ed Heinsen really gave an awesome answer one time. He said, you know what? He goes, I speak all over the world. I don't speak all over the world, so I couldn't say this. I speak all over the country, but not all over the world. He goes, I speak all over the world. And he said, only when I'm speaking in America do I get that question. He says, no one ever says, where's Canada in Bible prophecy? Or where's Costa Rica in Bible prophecy? Right? We're so obsessed. We're a 250-year-old nation that's been on life support for the last 20 years, and we think the whole world revolves around us. Now, I'm proud of our country. I'm thankful I get to raise my kids here for now. But our freedoms are slipping fast. Our economy is, is, is all but done. Uh, and we need to understand that our, the blessing of the rapture is not a guarantee that we will be rescued before things get, quote, bad. Because for a lot of Christians right now all over this globe, things are very bad, worse than they've ever been. So we need to be prepared and recognize that. So uh, the church is a mystery. Secondly, the church is the last days. The church is the last days. We see this in uh, passages like Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, these, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You know, sometimes we read the phrase last days and we think it means towards the end, right before Christ is going to come back. And I'm speaking in February at another Stealing the Mind conference where they've asked me to speak on 10 unmistakable signs that were in the last days of the last days. And there are certainly some signs that we could speculate and say, yeah, this could be near the end. But the last days technically is the entire church age. John put it this way, little children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even how many Antichrists has come. So that was in the first century he was saying that. Paul says, know this, in the last days perilous times will come. That's today. That's the age in which we're living. Uh, in, in, in 1 Timothy 4 he says, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Peter says, Knowing this verse, that scoffers will come in the last days, basically denying uh, the promise of the return of Christ. 
That's why there's so much animosity toward the teaching about eschatology today. You know, I, I run into it all the time when people say, what, what, is your, what do you like to speak on? What are some of your subjects that you speak on? I talk about end times prophecy. And they say, oh, you believe that stuff? That's, that, that's so confusing. No one really agrees on it. Why do you waste your time on that? And I think every time, 2 Peter 3, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jude 18, there would be mockers in the last time. So if you go back to our chart, the church age is the last days. The end times is everything that comes after the rapture. So there's a distinction in scripture between the eschaton, starting with the rapture and everything, all the fulfilled prophecy that comes after that, and the last days. We are in the last days. Again, if you look at God's plan of the ages here, this is the last days. And if you think of it sequentially, indeed, the only age to come is the kingdom age. So it is the last days. That's why the disciple says, what will be the sign of the end of the age, meaning this age, and the one to come? Now, they weren't in the church age. I get that. We try to sometimes granulate it a little bit too much. From their perspective, the church was still a mystery. They just knew, hey, the kingdom's coming. He said the kingdom is at hand. That's, that's the end of this age and everything before it, and we go into the final age. They didn't understand there would be a delay. There would be a parenthesis, as it were, in this mystery of the church. But the last days are also evil days. Evil days. Uh, I think you, you don't need you know, to, to look at these verses to know that just from a glance at the newspapers. Galatians 1, uh, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. In 2 Timothy 3.13, we read, Evil men and impostors will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now think about that. That was written in 67 A.D., shortly before Paul was martyred. And if it was true, under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, like all of Scripture, and if it was true then, how much more true is it today? I don't mean to sound like a fatalist. I'm just a realist. We need to understand what God's Word says about the present age. We are more deceived today than we were yesterday. And we will be more deceived tomorrow than we will be, than we are today. And that's the only reason I can explain why so many people today are willing to vote for a presidential candidate who be, believes in partial birth abortion, who supports Planned Parenthood, who, you know, uh, has all sorts of other moral issues, who's a globalist, but enough about Trump. Um, <clears throat> so First uh, John 5.19 says, The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is the evil age. Uh, number three, the church age is calling out a people for his name. This is another unique aspect of the present age. Um, and in Acts 15... We read, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take a people out of them, to take out of them a people for his name. See, that's why we're called Christians. In Acts 11, we read the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's unique, right? The Jews are not called Yahwehites, right? But we're called Christians. That's special. We have a special, unique relationship. Kurt and I were talking about this last night at his house, just about the intimacy, the uniqueness of being the bride of Christ and being part of that uh, special relationship. It uh, doesn't mean we're better. It just means we're unique. The church and Israel are distinct. They have unique roles to play in God's plan. 
including in the future. Uh, number four, the church age is showcasing the exceeding riches of God's grace and mercy. Now, again, as I said in the opening, that's not to say that grace is a new concept. It's just that in this present age, it's highlighted uh, in, in high definition, crystal clear color. Paul says in that passage we read in Ephesians 2 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. For 2,000 years now in the present church age, we've been seeing examples of God's grace. Every believer in this room is an example of God's grace, right? There was a far more individualized focus in the present church age than there was in the Old Testament age of Israel. It's more corporate in focus. Not that there wasn't individual salvation. Of course there was. Every Jew had to be saved individually first before they can corporately call on the name of the Lord and be delivered into the kingdom. That's why Paul says, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But, but the focus was more national in the Old Testament and more individual in the New. And that's why when covenant theology starts with the New Testament, they inevitably end up downplaying the national promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And they're ignored and marginalized and, and, and people think, oh, they don't need a literal kingdom. Even though the boundaries are very clearly spelled out, the dimensions of the temple, everything could not be more clear in detail. But it's, it's elevating the individual. But in this present age, uh, we see God's grace and God's mercy. Paul says in Romans 11, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. Number five, the church age is designed to get Israel's attention. I love this, um, and I know in, in our group here this is not new information, but it's a great reminder uh, to kind of knock us down off of our high horse. As special as we are as the bride of Christ and as unique as the church age is and, and, and the role that we have to play in helping rule and reign in the kingdom someday, we really are just part of God's plan to get Israel's attention. You know, um, He says in Romans 11, I say then... Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. In other words, has Israel's stumbling over the, the, the stumbling stone, has it caused an utter failure? Have they lost all future? No, certainly not. He says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now watch this in verse 12. Now if their fall is riches for the world, in other words, just thinking chronologically and logically from man's perspective. Now, from God's perspective, this is all timeless and it's all part of his plan. From our perspective, if Israel's rejection, when they crowned him with thorns instead of a king's crown, if the result of that was salvation for the whole world, Gentiles now in much greater numbers coming to faith than they did in the Old Testament, then and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness... Just imagine what it's going to be like during the kingdom age or even before that during the tribulation in the lead up to the kingdom. People from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 13, or 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the uttermost parts of the world and then the end will come. The, the evangelistic harvest and success during the tribulation, we won't be there, but we'll, we'll be enjoying the marriage of the Lamb in heaven and, and have gone through the Bema judgment. But on earth... The evangelistic harvest will be far more successful, believe it or not, than it is even today. See, we're charged with going through all the world and preaching the gospel today, and, and perhaps we might reach every unreached people group before the rapture. It's certainly possible. Nothing in Scripture precludes that. 
But what we can say with absolute certainty is that prior to the second coming, every single human being that walks the face of the earth will have heard the gospel. That's what Matthew 24, 13 tells us. And, and people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, not just Jews, will be getting saved. And then, so if, if you think about the kingdom versus the beginnings of the church age, the end of the apostolic age, how much more of a, of a worldwide revival will there be when Israel is center stage again, the king of kings is on the throne. I mean, think about evangelism in the kingdom, and there will eventually be unbelievers in the kingdom. When those who survive the, king, the tribulation, who are believers, and they enter the kingdom, Jesus says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom. So they physically and their physical bodies are in the kingdom. They'll all be believers, but over time, over a thousand years in the millennium, those believers will have babies, and those babies, like all children, will be born dead in their trespasses and sins. Some of them will grow up and be lost, and there'll be an evangelistic need. But the difference will be we won't, we won't have to sit down with someone at Starbucks, and yes, there will be Starbucks in the kingdom, uh, <laughs> and, and tell them about somebody 2,000 years ago who died and rose again for their sins. What we'll say is, hey, do you want to be saved? Well, you know that guy over in Jerusalem that you saw give the State of the World address on CNN last night? If you'll trust in him, you can be saved. It'll be, it'll be unbelievable. And that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, if, the fall, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So, so here we have Israel falling, God and his plan using that to expand the gospel focus, and the church really isn't the end-all, be-all. We're not the apple of his eye. That's Israel. And God has not forsaken them. He hasn't forgotten them. He's looking forward to them uh, coming back. Uh, and then we see the church age is showcasing God's wisdom to Satan. And uh, speaking of wisdom, by the way, here's a little pearl of wisdom that I really thought we could all appreciate and savor for just about six seconds. <laughs> I might be thinking that the Packers are going to lose to the Cowboys. See, the guys no in the sound booth are clearly Vikings fans because they're turning the volume down. They've learned, they've learned to anticipate me. Um, God's wisdom, Ephesians 3.10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To who? The principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Do you realize Satan is not om omniscient? He's not omnipotent. He's not omnipresent. He's watching, and he's seeing how God's plan is unfolding, and he is not happy. And uh, that's why uh, this cosmic struggle is going to come to a climactic end during the tribulation. And then uh, under the nature of the church, the last thing is the church age is preparing a body to rule in the messianic kingdom. And uh, we see this throughout Jesus' teaching, and particularly in the uh, epistles during the church age. Uh, Luke 22, I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Luke 19, that parable that we referenced at the outset, uh, what does Jesus say that the king is going to say to those who are faithful while he's gone during his long delay? He's going to say, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, I will make you faithful or have authority over ten cities. So he's preparing a body that will help rule in the Messianic kingdom. Now, let's look at the beginning of the church. I've just got seven quick steps. There's not a lot to this, but you can prove in seven steps that the church began in Acts chapter 2. All right? So jot these down. Step number one, 
The church did not exist in the Old Testament. You can search the Old Testament in vain, and there's no references to the ecclesia, to the church. Okay? Number two, the church did not exist during the earthly ministry of Christ. Now, how do we know that? Well, the only time it's mentioned is in Matthew 16, 18, where it's used in the future tense. And Jesus says, future tense, I will build my church. Future tense. So it clearly was not present when Jesus said those words to Peter and the other disciples. All right, step number three. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus promises a baptism in the near future. Going back to that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen to what he says. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we're getting closer to some event that's called this baptism of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2 then, step number 4, the baptism occurs. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4, that baptism occurs. It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now you fast forward in Acts chapter 11, step number 5. Peter refers back to that momentous occasion on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and he calls it a, quote, beginning. Beginning of what? Well, we'll find out. In Acts 11, he's talking about the experience of Cornelius, and he says, as he's defending that before the other apostles, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Beginning of what? Right? Well, in step number six, we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that Paul tells us that this baptism, which Peter said was a beginning, formed a body. Quote. Listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Watch this. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And then the final step to unequivocally prove that the church began on the day of Pentecost is Ephesians 1.22, where this body is called what? The church. The church. In Ephesians 1.22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The same thing is in Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. So the church is a beginning, and it happened, the beginning of it, in Acts chapter 2. And the end of the church age? Well, that leads us to the last section, and that is the future of the church. The future of the church. First thing we need to understand is the church will face increasing persecution prior to the rapture. The church will face increasing persecution prior to the rapture. We've looked at these already when we talked about how the last days is an evil age, but Paul said, know this, in the last days perilous times will come. He said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Again, we're more deceived today than we were yesterday. Um, that great theologian Mark Twain once said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. And uh, Hitler said, the bigger the lie, the easier it is to get people to believe it. So you've got a deadly combination right now where it's easier to deceive and at the same time it's easier to be deceived. And it's no wonder 
in the last hundred years we've convinced generations of seventh graders that they all evolved from monkeys. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, 65 billion years ago, nothing exploded, and the result is you and me sitting here today. Isn't that great? The future of the church, the church will be rescued at the rapture, hallelujah, before the 70th week of Daniel. What a great moment that will be. Several passages make this very clear, 2 Thess 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the quintessential passage is 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That phrase, caught up, harpazo, I know you know this, just means a violent snatching away. It's, a, it's truly a rescue. The, the word picture there is one of Maybe a, if you can picture a child playing in the street and an 18-wheeler comes around the corner and the parent sees that 18-wheeler bearing down on the child and in the nick of time reaches out and snatches the child out of harm's way. And that's what God's going to do with the church. Uh, in his time and in his way, not that we won't have to suffer many terrible things. People in generations, for the last 2,000 years, many generations have suffered unspeakable things. Think about Stalin and Hitler and all the Christians that died in those horrible regimes, and we may have to experience that too, if that's the Lord's plan. But what we can say with certainty is before that 70th week of Daniel, when the cosmic struggle reaches climactic proportions, unprecedented proportions, we will be rescued. Because Paul tells us that uh, he will deliver us from the wrath to come. He has not appointed us to suffer wrath but to obtain deliverance. That's what that word means, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when does that happen? Here we are in the church age, and we're going to be rescued right there at the rapture before all of these things unfold. And, um, and unfold they certainly will. Number three, the church will be glorified at the rapture. And speaking of glorious things, I thought one final time <laughs> we would hear... These glorious words. I might be thinking that the Packers are going to lose to the Cowboys oh, today. I just love that. No man knows. No man knows. Well, I know, Pastor. I knew, and you did too, and we have it on tape. Um, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, that's not the motto for the church nursery, as I'm sure you've heard. Uh, that is talking about our glorification. When this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruption puts on incorruption, and we're changed. See, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And, uh, and I don't know about you, but you know, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, how the whole body is groaning, desiring to be clothed uh, in our glorified body. I, I, the older I get, I'm 48, the older I get, the more I can appreciate and uh, relate to that. Uh, number four, the church will be presented to Christ as the bride at the marriage of the Lamb. That's a wonderful thing to look forward to in the future. We'll see him face to face. Romans 7 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. And in Ephesians 5, in that famous passage, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. 
Revelation 19 describes that event. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. In Revelation 21.9 it says, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So we can look forward to the marriage of the Lamb. And then number five, the church will be evaluated and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. That's what Luke 19 is all about. Be faithful because you're going to have to give an account when the king comes back. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother, Paul said? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. A time of reward. Not, not a, I got a text this week from somebody in New, New Mexico who uh, had listened to something we had on the, on the show and, or on the website and wanted to know about you know, being punished at the judgment seat. And uh, I know in this crowd... We, we understand uh, that there are no punitive damages at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you shall never come into judgment. You've passed from death to life. It's a time of evaluation for reward, to see who's going to, who's going to hold what position in, uh, in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, if you go back and read Luke 19, it's fascinating. The guy that does nothing with his mina, he still gets into the kingdom. It's another huge distinction between the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. And the parable of the talents... The one servant who squanders the talent, he doesn't get in because that's Israel. And Jesus is saying, this is your last opportunity during the tribulation. Do something with this talent, will you? Because after this, it's over. But in the Mina, the guy who does nothing, who buries it, he still gets in. But he just doesn't have any stewardship when he gets there, right? It's kind of like, you know, and I know some of you may not be football fans, so you're probably tiring of my football analogy, so I apologize. But, but you know, if you've got a whole season, let's say the Cowboys go the whole season, they end up 15-1, and one, uh, they're one point away from being undefeated at the moment. And by the way, they play the Vikings December 1st, so I'll look forward to commiserating with you then. Uh, let's say they go the whole season. They go 15-1. and one. Uh, Let's say they're going to the playoffs. They're in the Super Bowl. All right? We might as well dream big, right? And uh, it's the end of the game. They're down by five points. They're on the one-yard line. They need a touchdown to win. It's the last play of the game, three seconds on the clock, and you're the coach. And you've got two running backs on your roster, one of which... Ezekiel Elliott, carried the ball an average of 30 times a game, rushed for over 2,000 yards on the season, fumbled only three times and didn't lose any of them, and, and he carried you know, an average of seven yards per carry. The other running back, also a member of the soon-to-be Super Bowl champion Cowboys as soon as they win this game, uh, carried the ball six times all year, fumbled five times and lost four of them, and gained a total of negative 12 yards. Who are you going to give the football to in that pivotal moment? The one that's proven. Dak Prescott, that'd be all right. I can handle him. He'd, do, he'd be probably even better. We've got so many talents, it's just hard to pick. You know, I can't decide, right? So the reward at the kingdom is, is mostly positions of service and leadership and, and things that we will do in helping rule and reign in the kingdom. Number six, the church will return with Christ to inaugurate the Messianic kingdom. The church will return with Christ to inaugurate the Messianic kingdom. We read about this in Revelation 19. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. If you remember the book of Revelation and its literary structure, in chapter 6 we read about the introduction of a white horse. It's the first horseman of the apocalypse. It's the unveiling of the Antichrist who makes, tries to you know, uh, take over the world. And then you come to the end of Revelation and you have another white horse. But notice this time he's called faithful and true. The first time it was an imposter, this time it's the real deal. Jesus Christ himself. 
And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And here it is, the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's the church coming back right here at this moment in conjunction with the Battle of Armageddon to usher in and inaugurate this final kingdom, the, the, the promise of the kingdom. And then finally, number seven, the church will rule and reign with Christ during the Messianic kingdom. The church will rule and reign with Christ during the Messianic kingdom. And so we read about this already. He says, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, again, going back to Luke 19, he says, hey, because you are faithful and very little, have authority over 10 cities, right? So he might say to me, you know, I want you to be in charge of, you know, New Jersey. You might say to Tom Stiegel, I want you to be in charge of, you know, all of Europe. <laughs> you know, that would probably be about the way it's going to happen. Um, but if we endure, we know we will reign with him. If we don't endure, he'll deny us the opportunity to reign. We, we may or may not have as much position of authority like the last servant in the parable of Minas. But clearly, that's the purpose of the church, one of the future, one of the future uh, goals of the church. So here's what I'll leave you with. First of all, recognize the unique purpose of the church and God's plan of the ages. It really is a privilege, all kidding aside, to live in this age of the glorious church. And so reflect that glory. Reflect that glory as, as his envoys today. Paul says we are to shine like lights in this perverse generation. And I hope that's what we're doing. And then finally, remember and watch for the blessed hope every day. It could be today. You know, that would be all right with me, you know. Uh, would anybody mind missing the rest of the conference in exchange for seeing the Lord in the clouds? Not me. Not me. Let's pray together.